Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, episode 104, In Case of Emergency. I'm Gary Jordan, and I'll be your host today. On this podcast, we bring in the experts, NASA scientists, engineers, astronauts, all to let you know the coolest information about what's going on right here at NASA. So if you're familiar with us, you may know that we've had a number of episodes about the Orion spacecraft, the one that will be traveling into deep space. We've talked about many things, life support, uh, protecting from heat and radiation, maintaining navigation communication, and the propulsion to make the spacecraft go. A large part of the design of all of these parts is not only making sure that they work, but adding redundancy so you know that they will work even if something goes wrong. But what do you do if you have an unexpected leak or a fire in any stage of flight? Well, as you can imagine, we've thought of that too. So today we're talking about how Orion and its crews will be prepared for every emergency you can think of. We're talking with Jason Hutt, Orion Crew Systems Integration Lead. His main role is to make sure that the design of all of the individual components in the Orion cockpit come together as one, in a way where the crew can complete a mission up to 21 days safely and successfully. Hutt walks us through some of the unlikely events that could happen and how the crew uh, will be able to respond effectively to these sticky situations. So with no further delay, let's jump right ahead to our talk with Mr. Jason Hutt. Enjoy. T-minus five seconds and counting. Mark. Launch commit light for the red. Here she goes. Jason, we have a Jason, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today, describing uh, all of these crazy emergencies that could happen on the Orion <laughs> spacecraft. You probably have, uh, have a lot of history with space movies then, right? Yes, I do. <laughs> Quite a bit. <laughs> That's yes. all that is anymore, right? It's just, oh, uh, sure. All right, we're going to do a movie in space. What can go wrong, and how can we make a story about it? That's, well, pr- that's your job, right? Your job is thinking about what can go wrong, absolutely. but except instead of how can we make a story about it, what can we do to fix it? How do we keep the crew alive how and do how we do we keep, keep them safe? There so. we go. Okay. Yeah. So um, I guess we'll start there. What, uh, let, let's give a broad overview of what kinds of emergencies can happen to the crew on the Orion spacecraft in deep space. Well, we're, we're looking at really anything that can threaten their lives. So we're looking at fires that, you know, we, we had the Apollo 1 fire early on in our history, and that's something that uh, we use, we, we've studied that event to make sure that we don't repeat something like that. We've looked at uh, a leak in the spacecraft. We know uh, there's been history with the, the collision with the, the Mir program that caused the depress on that. We, we look at that type of situation. Um, and then there are other medical emergencies and things like that that we need to be prepared for. While astronauts are typically the healthiest people on the planet, we still <laughs> need to be prepared for things that are, are uh, unexpected in those events. So, that's right. Uh, that's a lot of what we prepare for, but there's also the spacecraft emergencies as well. Think of like the Apollo 13 style failure where everything goes wrong and how do we get the crew home safely from there? Yeah. Uh, I like to think of it a lot as uh, if you remember the there's a standout scene there where Ed Harris as Gene Kranz is at a chalkboard talking about here's where we are this is wh- where we can get to and we can't get the crew home from here and that's not acceptable and really uh, that's m- part of my job is to make sure okay that 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 line always goes around the moon and back to earth 
yes. uh, with the Orion systems. Okay. So. so there's, I mean, when it comes to emergencies, obviously there's just things that are just going to happen, and if they happen, here's what we're going to do. But you have sort of this first line of defense when it comes to Orion. You're thinking about it ahead of time, right? You right. S- you talked about the history. We have the Apollo 1 fire. We have collision events. Right. You know, what do we do to just avoid those things in the first place? And I'm sure that there's a lot on Orion that uh, has been considered, right? That, that's correct. And everything that we do in our requirements for the design of the systems, we try to minimize the, the possibility of these emergencies happening. We look at the materials that are things are made of, making sure that they're not flammable. We... we certify every p- component to a certain percentage of oxygen in the cockpit. You know, the Apollo 1 mm-hmm. fire occurred in 100% oxygen environment. We don't operate that way anymore, we, but we do certify everything to a 40% oxygen environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and then even in that, once beyond materials and the selection, we look at the design of the spacecraft. And for example, for a lot of the components that are sort of behind panels, a lot of the computers and things like that that are actually running Orion, we flow nitrogen over those. By mm. having nitrogen flow over those, then they don't have oxygen available to feed a fire if, uh, if an, a malfunction were to occur. Okay. So we, we can do things even with the layout of the, the systems just to prevent that emergency from ever happening. So that's, that's exactly right. The, what you're thinking about is let's not even make the fire you know, possible. You're rating it to a point where um, it is considered safe enough to fly. That's right. But even still, you're thinking about, but what if there is a fire? Right. Because there's no way we can ever guarantee that an emergency won't happen. Right. Uh, we look at, again, thinking back to the Apollo 1 fire, I read the, the case study on that one, and when they did the decomposition of how did that actually start, mm-hmm. it was a wire underneath a seat that something had rubbed against in the assembly or integration or something like that, and the covering had come off of that wire. Mm-hmm. So no matter how much we prepare for it, uh, th- we can't prevent all of these accidents from occurring, and so then it's, okay, how do we protect it if it does happen? That but you so do have to protect against the mindset of, oh, hey, this could never happen. You know, right. People like to say that sometimes, but our engineers try really hard to make sure that their boxes can never fail in this way. But then I have to annoy them by asking the question, well, what if it does anyway? Yes. So, I forget exactly what Apollo astronaut said it, but uh, the I'm going to paraphrase the quote, but it was he was more concerned about what was not thought about right. rather than mitigating the assumption, you know, right. whatever emergency they could think of. They, right. they were actually more comfortable with with knowing that they at least thought about it. And, and that's how, kind of how I view this, you, uh, you know, going back to your original question on, on movies, you know, think yeah. about the movie The Martian. Right. And, and what does he do in that? He goes, the main character in that, as these problems occur, he goes and looks at what does he have and how can he make it work? Mm-hmm. And it's not about what everything was designed to do, it's what you can do with the things that you have. Mm-hmm. So it's making sure that when, our, when we are going out into deeper space, especially in the Orion spacecraft, the crew's going to have what they need That's to right. survive. And, of course, the spacecraft itself is is the first line of defense, right? You already That's said right. you're rating it. You're making sure the materials are going to be more fireproof, that the environment itself, the composition of the air inside is going to be rated to an acceptable right. level. Because, the, the, like you said, 100% oxygen, too flammable. You can't, you can't do that. Right. And, you know, the other piece, key piece there is Orion as a whole, the system is designed to be single fault tolerance. So mm-hmm. that as, every, as one key component fails, we have a backup that will come online, an identical backup in some cases. Okay. Then for a few key things like communication, uh, the main vehicle computers, we have back entirely 
different backup systems that don't necessarily have the same functionality or capability, but they're there for survival capability. So that mm -hmm. if we have, so for example, we have uh, two strings of our, our communication system. So basically we have two sets of boxes that are redundant uh, for us to communicate through satellite network down to the ground. Uh, but if we have some kind of failure that takes out both of those strings, as we call them, then we have a completely separate redundant system that the crew can use, has limited capability, but it still would allow them to communicate with the ground. Hmm. So, and, and for those, we call those survival capabilities. They don't necessarily, they're not as robust as some of our main systems, but they're, they're intended to help keep the crew alive and get back home. It's to at least situation. have something, right? Yes. Because the alternative is, is to have these two redundant systems, but then nothing backing that That's up. right. Okay. But then one other piece of my job is also ask the question, if the crew doesn't have any help from the ground, can they still get home? So even beyond that redundancy, we still have some discussions of how could they make this work. And, and we do protect for providing the crew with enough information that if they're not able to communicate with the ground in any way, that they can still make it home safely. It must be a nightmare inside your head. You're just thinking about all the different things that could possibly go wrong. All of these situations are pretty tricky. There are, there, you know, this summer, yeah. this year, we've gone through about six months of pulling teams together. and. Hmm. We would bring in the engineering teams, medical teams, uh, Navy representatives for retrieving the crew in the ocean. We would talk through with the astronaut office, the ops team, and then every component has its own designer. And we bring all those people together and we talk through these scenarios and try to figure them out end to end. It is, there are a lot of my great minds who are working together on these things. That's so, incredible. Yeah. Well, let's keep going with some of the, um, some of the Orion uh, first line of defense stuff. We already yes. talked about fireproofing. We talked about some of the, how the, the communication systems are redundant, but then you got a backup. What else is already in the design of Orion to make sure that they're going to be safe in the first place? We do have micromedia protection. You know, we haven't really talked a little bit about, uh, okay. about potential leaks. So yeah. they're there, you know, on the service module, you have uh, uh, the multi-layered insulation, the, the uh, we have basically Kevlar inside the shell of the service module. Uh, the tile protection system on Orion is sized to a certain height to help prevent uh, uh, micrometeorite impact and in, in breakthrough into the, the cabin. So we have those types of protections as well. Uh, and then I think I've already mentioned most of the, the big picture redundancies and things like that where we have backup computers and things. Mm -hmm. so. So these are already um, part of the design. You know, you have the, the, uh, the essential idea is you have the thing that you're protecting against, fire, micrometeoroids, right? And then you have things to back that up just in case something right. goes wrong. You're thinking a couple levels down, right? What if this goes wrong? What if, what if the two strings start, both fail, then that third backup string also fails. Now how are they communicating? Let's go there. Once... Um, Let's go to some of these things have failed. How about we start with uh, fire, since we Kay. at least started with that. All of these, you know, you, you've, you've designed the materials inside to prevent fires, the, the um, environment itself, but now there is a fire. What is the crew doing? So for a fire response, one thing that we look at first is that we expect this is going to be a rapidly evolving situation. So mm -hmm. we expect that the crew is going to need to be able to take action without any assistance from the ground. So the fire response is going to be fairly simple. Orion is fairly small. This isn't like ISS where you have to go hunting around. And I, I, I work 
uh, or I was an instructor on ISS for about five years and a training lead for three years. And we trained a uh, part of it was training crews on emergencies. Uh, so in that in, in that case, you have lots of time, you have lots of volume. Ryan is very small. Uh, as soon as they see smoke, first thing that it's going to happen, either the vehicle will detect a fire uh, via the smoke detector that we have in the cabin, or the crew can push a button on their control panel to enunciate the fire. And that will immediately start shutting some systems down. It'll stop air circulation so that hopefully we stop uh, providing the fire with oxygen. Hmm. Uh, and then immediately what they'll do is go get the fire extinguisher. We have a water-based fire extinguisher in Orion. And then what we have done is we reviewed all the potential fire sources, and then we tr picked out what we thought was the fire source of greatest concern. And that's our what we call our design to fire. Uh, for Orion, what we've picked is the a lithium-ion battery in a computer that the crew is using, in a portable computer that the crew is using in the cockpit uh, that would be open. That is our fire source of greatest concern. Okay. Uh, so all of our systems are designed to that. Uh, and part of the reason that's our fire source of greatest concern um, is that the lithium-ion battery, if, they, if it were to catch fire, and, and you may remember there was a series of news articles or, or news occurrences where there were some phone batteries that were catching on fire. Lithium-ion That's the lithium-ion battery that okay. we're talking about here. And that w I think it ultimately came down to a manufacturing defect in those batteries. Okay. So that's the type of thing that we're talking about here. Uh, and the reason we pick it is because it generates a whole lot of heat. Uh, and it's, it also generates a lot of toxic chemicals that are then byproducts of that fire. So the crew is immediately going to grab their water-based fire extinguisher, and then they're going to empty their fire extinguisher onto that lithium-ion battery. And in order to adequately put out the fire, they're going to discharge all of the water that's in that uh, fire extinguisher. Hmm. Um, and we need that. It has to be water for a lithium-ion battery fire because those fires get really hot and you need a phase change, basically the water turning into steam, into water vapor, to help dissipate the heat from the fire. Uh, so they're going to put that out right away. Now, the fire itself turns into, generates some really nasty byproducts. And we've done some firebox testing uh, at Glen with, uh, in coordination with Glen Research Center, uh, where we've burned up some of these batteries and then we've evaluated what comes off of those. Uh, and one of the chemicals that's introduced is it's called acrolene. And it has a very, it has a tear gas like effect on the crew member, it causes burning of the eyes, stinging, um, and it can be very toxic for the crew. So while one crew member is most likely discharging the fire extinguisher on the fire, other crew members are going to be grabbing the contingency breathing apparatus, basically a hood that the crew member can put on that'll have some filters in it that allow them to breathe safely. Hmm. And they'll put that hood on. Uh, now, hopefully, in that short span of time, maybe about three or four or five minutes between noticing that you have smoke coming off the laptop, discharge the fire extinguisher and put, off the, put on the gas mask, hopefully at that point you put it out. Mm -hmm. now, uh, now, if it's something that it's not in the open cabin, if it's a piece that's behind a panel, Orion is a little bit different than past vehicles. Uh, ISS, you have fire extinguishers designed to be discharged behind those panels. We don't necessarily have that. Hmm. But like I said before, we've tried to, we fly nitrogen, or excuse me, flow nitrogen over our computers to make hmm. sure they don't catch fire. Right. But if they do, the crew could remove a panel, discharge the fire extinguisher behind a panel if necessary. Okay. Uh, but hopefully, 
if we ever have a fire, it's not going to be behind one of those panels. It'll be out in the, in the open cabin. Right. It's one of those, um, it, it has to get through these several layers of defense first. Right. It's got to be, you know, the design of the equipment itself, the nitrogen flowing over it. Right. It's, there's a lower probability of catching fire in the first place, but what if it does? That's where you're at right now. And we've tested those computers to show and shown that if a fire does start in that com- computer, mm-hmm. it usually burns itself out. So, again, it would have to be something else would have to catch on fire with it in order for that fire to propagate and get worse in the cabin. A low probability of something right. getting to that point, which As is a, why you're, that's your risk. Right. As okay. opposed to a fire in the open cabin right. where you have clothes for the crew members, maybe mm-hmm. you have a paper from a, something that they're working on. There's, there's more fuel that could be consumed in a fire in the open cabin than there is behind some of these bays. Okay. Right. And obviously, you know, a lot of teams working on this, assessing this, and figuring out that, yes, there is a risk of that, but it's so low that we can feel comfortable designing it in this fashion. Right. Okay. But we still have the capability to respond in some form or fashion. We yes. We can't have the, the, the hubris of, of saying this will never, never happen. happen. Right. right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it so. seems like that's a that's a huge part of Orion is you, you can even tell as we're discussing now, a lot of this is the redundancies, a lot of the space being taken up, you know, is um, not only redundant systems, but emergency systems, right? You that's have right. gas masks packed, ready to right. go just in case something happens. Um, so what, what other kinds of emergencies? We get through these several layers of already the defense of Orion. How about uh, a leak? What if a leak were to happen? So a leak is a really challenging one, okay. right? And this is really get, starts getting into some of our worst case scenarios. Area. Hmm. Uh, back in the in the constellation era, prior to becoming the Orion program, they made a decision for how large a hole could we protect for, uh, and we and what the community came to a conclusion was a quarter inch hole, quarter inch diameter hole in the in the Orion cabin, is really the largest hole that the vehicle could sustain and safely re-enter the atmosphere in hmm. uh, in terms of plasma re-entry into the vehicle and not destroying the vehicle. So once we figured that out, uh, we used that to size all of our systems uh, to, okay, how do we provide enough air so that we can keep the crew alive? How do we provide a means for to keep the crew alive for a quarter inch hole in the cabin? Now, the first question we have to answer is what are they going to be in? How do they survive? And what we have is our pressure suit. We have our Orion crew survival system, which is our, the orange suit that we are developing for Orion that becomes, in essence, a smaller spacecraft for the remainder of the mission. Mm. And a key thing that we had to figure out was, how long do we have to protect for? We're going out to the moon. You know, there was, in that, back to that Apollo 13 scene where, where they, Ed Harris drew the X on the, the chalkboard, they had the, the question of, okay, do we come right home or do we go around the moon and, and come home? Right. Uh, well, we've looked at that as well. We've been trying to answer that question. And basically, we have a cutoff point where we say, okay, at this point, we would just do a free return versus at this point, we're going to come directly home. If we do the free return, we're looking at about 120 hours to come home. Uh, and then we've added to that a, a day of margin. So we say uh, we, we, we have our design to length of 144 hours to get the crew safely home okay. for a quarter inch hole in the cabin. So if I take those two parameters, then I can go design my systems for how do I protect for that uh, from a crew member perspective. And I'm talking about uh, we have to protect for four crew members to be live inside of suits, inside of their pressure suit for 144 hours while the rest of the vehicle is at vacuum. Whew. 
Yes. So <laughs> it is a very difficult design challenges, and our team has been working on that uh, very hard over the last many years. And we finally come to a point where we have most of the things working worked out. Now, if you think of yourself, you're going to be inside of a suit, you know, if you go scuba diving or, or crew members who go out for EVAs now. We don't do that for longer than eight hours for, for an ISS spacewalk. Uh, now, we're really talking about you're going to have to have systems for all of your biological functions for six days. Oh, yeah. So that means protecting. We need a main means of, of giving you food and water. And we need a means of collecting waste. And we need a means of making sure that that waste doesn't cause you to get sick where an infection would develop and cause the crew member to die because of that infection. Hmm. Um, and those have been some really tricky challenges. Um, and it, it's all been designed by separate teams and now coming in together in kind of a holistic system where um, to, there's, there's really, to say it graciously, we have a fecal collection bag that the crew member would actually, that a, two crew members will help each other, they will get suited, and they will glue a bag that will collect poop for, for 144 hours. Ooh, yeah. Yes. That's, well, that's the way you got to do it, I guess, That's right? the way you got to do it. So Ooh. what happens is, and let me back up a second, if once we have that, that quarter-inch hole in the cabin, the crew has basically one hour after that leak to get into their spacesuits and to make sure that they are holding pressure. Uh, and that's how much air or gas that, that Orion can provide to, before we start dropping below a limit that would be hazardous to their health. So they have 30 minutes to get the suit on, then they have 30 minutes to do leak checks to make sure that the suits are holding pressure, and then we start just living in those suits. So you have 30 minutes where you're gonna strip off your clothes, you're gonna attach this other hardware. We have a system for, for fecal collection and we have a system for urine collection. Then you're gonna quickly get your suit on. There's probably, there's a couple of other things in the cabin that you probably need to go and configure as well because it's gonna be hard to do it with inside of your suit. Then you're gonna get that suit on and at the 30 minute mark, we have to have that first crew member starting their leak check. And then from there, we do them all serially. We do one crew member at a time. That way, if one crew member fails when they get added, we can quickly tell, okay, this crew member has a problem with their suit configuration. We need to go correct that really quick and then try again. Uh, so it's really gonna be a time critical event. There's not gonna be any time for modesty in that scenario. It's your life is in danger. You need to respond as quickly as possible in mm -hmm. this one. You're in emergency mode. You're in emergency mode. Yeah. Uh, and now, the reason that we have to do things like that, uh, fecal skin contact. If, if, if you have a baby, you know a diaper rash can, can develop if the baby's not clean. Well, mm. this is the same type of concept. Remember, you're gonna be inside a suit. You're not gonna be able to take that suit off for six days. You can't exactly throw anything out. So we need to make sure that we, we try at least to prevent that contact. Uh, and we do that with, we have a barrier cream that is inside the bag that gets applied to the crew member as they're putting on the bag. And that cream and the bag then uh, help keep the crew isolated from, from skin contact. And even the food is designed to produce less waste after your body processes it. Huh. Yeah, yes, it's considered to be what we call a low residue diet. There you go. Okay. Not something you want on a, on a no. normal situation, but no. yeah, in yeah. an emergency situation, I could see why. There's engineering challenges with it. 
are are the consensus of our community. This is really a, a worst case scenario. Yeah. The, you, this is not going to be a pleasant scenario for anybody involved. But the mm-hmm. goal is keep you alive in a situation where you otherwise wouldn't be alive. Right. So, uh, yeah, one other thing that I'll mention there from a urine uh, uh, point of view, the, the urine breaks down into ammonia. Uh, one of the design challenges that the team had to come up with is how do you keep that ammonia out of the suit? Because once all four crew members are in their suits, they're all sharing the same atmosphere. They're all connected to the same system. Oh. Uh, and so uh, any gas that gets introduced in one suit is shared by it will be disseminated through all of them. Oh. So we had to have ammonia isolated from the suit. And so essentially we have a tube that comes out of the suit that connects to a tank. And then that tank connects to a valve that they can then vent overboard. Uh, there's there's a two chambers in the tank, one that is exposed to the crew member, one that's exposed to space. And basically, they once you have the urine in the tube, you expose it to the vacuum, and, you, and that gets expelled into space. So. Huh. Okay. So this is even in the suit. There's still this, this system. That's right. Hmm. This system is in, built into the suit. Um, uh, for food and water, we have a port in the helmet where the crew members will be able to fill up a drink bag from the Orion water tank. They insert a straw through the helmet and they can drink the water that's inside of that bag. Food, it's its more of a liquid diet at that ca- in that case, but we do have uh, four flavors, chocolate, vanilla, strawberry, and banana. Okay. Uh, that they you. have, yes. So uh, four uh, liquid foods and that goes through the same port on the helmet. Uh, there's one piece that we're still working on, and that's medicine delivery to the crew members. Uh, mm. uh, in, in, a, in this scenario, uh, there's a possibility for infections. There's a possibility for high anxiety. Uh, there's a possibility for lack of sleep. We would like to be able to have the option, at least, of giving the crew members medications to help with those different types of medical issues. And we're still working out what's the best way for us to deliver medicine into the suit while maintaining the efficacy of the medicine. So making sure that it, it works as intended for the different body types, body sizes of the, the crew members. Okay. Yeah. And just to, just to circle back on this, the worst case scenario um, would be a leak at a point where you would have to live in a suit for how much time? 144 hours. Six days is what we're designing six to. Six days. Okay, yes. so a leak can happen at you know any point in the mission, but in the worst position would be you'd have to do that for six That's days. That's right, six days out. Which makes sense on why you would want to have the things like medicine, the things like all of these systems, right. because ultimately it's crew survival at that point. That's right. the mode you're in. Okay, I can see why of, of the emergencies, this is one of the more difficult one is the leak, where you have to do this. And, and right, where you essentially have to create a second spacecraft, and, right. and you're going to set up the human body so that you can't touch it for the next six days. Okay, yeah. So the, uh, the, but the system itself is, I mean, okay, we're going back to Orion. Orion is obviously designed to make sure that it can withstand uh, a decent amount of right. uh, micrometeorite impact or whatever else may cause uh, a leak. And a, a quarter inch is is a decent size of a hole, right? So yeah, I mean, if you if you've seen the pictures of the recent hole in the Soyuz, I mean, mm-hmm. that's that's I, I don't remember what the exact diameter of that was, like but that's pretty. That's you know, it's close to what we were talking about here. Okay. So, okay. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, okay. And, and unfortunately, that comes a trade-off. Yeah, we'd love to be able to protect for everything, but uh, I think last week, or in the or excuse me, in the Apollo episode, it was mentioned that you know mass is is one thing that we're constantly trading off. Well, mass is what we trade off in the sizing of the system. So we'd love to be able to protect for everything, but cost and mass are really two drivers that that say, okay, well, we can only go this far. Yes. Uh, with what we have. It's always a consistent theme when we have when we talk about Orion. Right. The, the the mass constraints because right. everyone you know emergency stuff is just one topic that we can talk about but we've talked about exercise equipment we've talked about food we've talked about i mean there's a lot of things that people are trying to cram into this tiny that's spacecraft. right <laughs> that's right and that even goes that's before we get to the science experiments that we know we're going to fly and want to do inside of orion these are right. just the basic systems they need to live and eat and respond and stay alive so right yeah. exactly Okay, so a lot of, uh, we talked about fires, we talked about uh, uh, the possibility of a leak. These are some of the, you know, definitely one of the larger uh, emergencies that could happen in space. What else What else can happen? So one of the other things that we're protecting for is a radiation event. Radiation uh, basically, event. a radiation storm. Uh, yeah. uh, I'm not going to, I'm not a radiation expert, so I might use the wrong t- uh, term there. But we basically have... Uh, our, our radiation teams have taken data from a, a worst-case radiation event. It was a 1972 event uh, that they've used to, to sort of model the radi- uh, worst-case radiation environment for us to design to. Hmm. Uh, in that instance, if we were to have a, a radiation event similar to that, we have built into Orion a, a radiation shelter and then a concept from an operation standpoint of how we would uh, configure the vehicle to minimize their the crew's exposure to to that radiation. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, we have we have two. The, the key for radiation detection is to put as much mass between you and the radiation as possible. So we've got a spot that is really central in the Orion cabin in, in, in our locker system, a stowage system that we have on, on what you would call the floor of the vehicle. Um, there's two large lockers. They're, they're roughly, roughly two feet wide by about two, three feet deep by about three feet, four feet long. Those two boxes are large enough, and we've done the testing, are large enough for two people to get in each one and sit, and uh, at least in a 1G environment, the crew members sit typically and, and sit face to face, and they would sit in those boxes. Uh, and then what else the crew is going to do is they're going to take all of the stuff that's in the lockers that was in those lockers, and they're going to basically build what I, what I like to call a, a pillow fort around themselves <laughs> uh, to try and put as much mass between them and the radiation source. Okay. Uh, and then they're going to take some things in there. They're going to take some food. They're going to take their, their laptops. They're going to take um, some... C- uh, umbilical so that they can have air circulation and they're going to stay in this what we call this radiation shelter for up to 24 hours for Ooh. this event yes it's another one of those where you're going to be very good friends with yes. your, your your locker buddy <laughs> yes <laughs> uh, and then but the the that will keep them safe. And, and we've already got the analysis to show that this will minimize their exposure to really the harmful effects of radiation uh, and should prevent uh, anything close to any kind of s- sort of severe radiation sickness or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So I think I, uh, I think I know the high level of the 1972 event. We, we weren't flying at the time, but I think if we were, the crew would have, I, I think, I don't think they would have survived that event. From what I understand, yeah, I don't. I, don't know the specific I have to say that I'm not entirely familiar with mm-hmm. uh, some of the radiation protection designs in the past, but we definitely understand a lot better now. Right. 
And it's something where now we've got this, it's, but it's intended for you're beyond the Earth's magnetic field. Yeah. This is a this is really a, a, a capability for deep space exploration or, and, and to make for going out beyond the Earth's magnetic field when you're going to be more exposed. It's a concept, and it's a concept that then we can apply to, to future vehicles as okay. well. Yeah. So, so the, yeah, the idea, the central idea is that during a radiation event, you want the most mass in between you. That's great. That's the radiation shielding. I think we did an episode a little bit ago about radiation shielding. And ba- basically, the, the biggest radiation shield, at least from a systems perspective, was redundancy, as right. we were talking about. Right. Uh, but from a crew perspective, yes, it's, it's, it's more mass. I guess, yeah, you're, you're, you're hanging out in a, in a spacesuit for a leak event. You're hanging out in a box for a radiation event. Right. These are definitely some of the toughest folks going, going to be yes, going they on, are. on these missions. Uh, psychologically as right. well as physically. So, yes. Yeah. Okay, radiation event, we have, we have leaks. These, there's a lot of these that are happening in space, right? That's right. So a lot of final things can happen even... After the mission is quote unquote done, you've re-entered the Earth's atmosphere. You're still not done. No, right? you're not. You're yeah. not done until that crew is safely out of that spacecraft and, right. and into uh, the care of, at this point, the Navy, who would be pulling on them onto their ship and the medical care there for any post-flight medical treatment they would need. Uh, but yes, we have looked. One of the other things that we have looked at is you know, splashdown. Uh, the entire descent sequence—it's it's a violent sequence, and splashdown exerts a lot of force on the vehicle. We try to minimize it from a crew perspective, mm-hmm. uh, but that's still there. So we still look at uh, what if you have a leak of either the two most harmful substances we have are ammonia or hydrazine. Hydrazine being the fuel for the thrusters on the on the, uh, the, the crew module, and then ammonia being the, the gas that we use from a cooling perspective mm-hmm. uh, for our systems on Orion, especially after uh, service module separation. Right. Uh, so we look at what happens uh, if we have either those are ingested during descent. Uh, so Orion is designed such that we don't never want more than one uh, PSI delta, one PSI difference between the outside atmosphere and the inside atmosphere hmm. uh, to protect uh, the structure. Uh, so if we were to come in at a lower pressure, let's say nine and a half PSI, which is the bottom edge of our nominal or normal operating range, uh, as we would descend lower and the air pressure goes above that, uh, then we have a valve that would open up and air would come in. Now, if that happens uh, at a point when a thruster is fired or depending on, on uh, you could potentially either get ammonia or hydrazine uh, ingestion. Ammonia ingestion is a lot more likely uh, as hydrazine should pass through the propulsion system and be converted to ammonia, but you could get an ingestion. Uh, so if something like that happens after the, the capsule splashes down, uh, depending on if it's upright or not, uh, Apollo landed upside down roughly 50% of the time. Hmm. Uh, so we know that we will sometimes land upside down. We have an uprighting system that will uh, bring the capsule to an upright position, but that is expected to take around four minutes, maybe seven minutes. Once the capsule uprights, the, the crew has a gas analyzer that's gonna be mounted off to the left of, of one of the crew members, and they're gonna be able to look at that and say, okay, do I have ammonia in the cockpit? If there's ammonia in the cockpit, it gives them a visible alarm, and then mm. their job is to get out of the spacecraft as quickly as possible while they're on these suits, uh, while they're in their suits. And they, we have uh, on the suit, there's a small air supply 
There's a 10-minute air supply with uh, small bottles that are actually strapped to the, the legs of each crew member. Uh, and they would switch over to that air supply as they get out of the spacecraft and then either into the, their own survival raft or into the raft of the, the Navy forces who are hopefully waiting right there to pick them up. Okay. So, so this is the event. A norm, in a normal landing, you'd still be wearing your pressurized suit just, you know, for safety reasons. Correct. Just in the normal procedure. But that designed in the suit are emergency features. That's like, right. Okay. That's right. We, like we that. will always have the crew members suited and have done make sure that those suits are holding pressure in the event that, that something happens during reentry where we would have a loss of cabin pressure or we get a harmful substance in there. Because mm-hmm. the reality is during that entire descent phase, which you're really talking about a, 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 about a 20-minute phase of the mission, crew can't do anything except stay seated and strapped into the vehicle. So we don't, if there is a, a malfunction that occurs or anomaly that occurs during that descent, we want them already to be prepared and in a position where they're going to be protected. Uh, so they have that, they're connected to the vehicle systems for the entire descent sequence. And then we have a separate, very small system that's really only intended to give them enough air to get out of the, the spacecraft mm-hmm. after they splash down. Uh, now. We all know that as the crew readjusts, readjusts to normal gravity, it's more difficult to move. They may be moving a little bit more slowly. Our system is designed to allow the crew members to get out within three minutes after splashing down in the ocean. Hmm. Uh, but we provide them 10 minutes worth of air. Now They're going to have a rush of adrenaline at that point. They're going to know <laughs> that they're in a potentially a harmful situation. Yes. And they're going to make their best effort to get out of the spacecraft as quickly as possible. And I guess is a, you said there's going to be two rafts that they could possibly jump out onto. One of them is the normal raft, the Navy's there, ready to pick them up. The other one sounds like it's an emergency raft. Correct. Okay, so that's part of it too. Yes, we, what we're really protecting for is to, you know, we hope we would always come down off the coast of San Diego and the Navy forces are nearby to pick up the crew. Uh, in as much as two hours after they splash down. Now, we don't expect it. Oh, we'll always take that long. We're still working about exactly how long we'll take. Okay. But we also protect for if there's a failure of our systems and we come down off target, or if we have to land early, or if we end the mission early, or if we have a launch abort uh, and the capsule lands in the ocean and the Navy is not present, hmm. and it could, we protect for up to 24 hours in the command module is kind of a lifeboat in the ocean uh, waiting for help to arrive. So we have to provide all of those systems as well. And that's where you get into the raft that they could deploy on their own if uh, the Navy wasn't there. Okay. Yeah. yeah, they do. They must do a lot of testing when it comes to Orion, not only just working the Orion itself, but going through all of these emergency situations. Yes. Wow. Uh, and, and we do a testing piece part. You know, we, we, we try test out some of the components on their own. We've done some testing of the life raft and things like that at mm-hmm. a wave pool at Texas A&M and, and some in oh, our neutral boards. Yes. Wow. <laughs> uh, well, we got to make <laughs> gotta sure simulate that, everything. That's right. right. Yeah. Uh, as much as we can. Uh, we, we've done some firebox testing where we take uh, tablets and laptops and we put them in and we burn them up and see what comes off of them and then test our filters to make sure that they're removing everything okay yeah. okay yeah uh so we do that piece part testing um now we're going to do tests to make sure that crew members can put on a suit in 30 minutes um 
that's going to be a very critical one for us. Oh yeah. Uh, I, we can't test all of these things. You know, in in we don't want to expose people to some of these chemicals. We don't want to. Yeah, put them in a suit for six days. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> right. So you know, we 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 test them in piece parts, and then we try to do some analysis to show. Okay, we have enough oxygen. We have enough capacity. Things like mm -hmm. that to show. Yeah. Uh, we will do some demonstrations during the missions. We're talking about for the radiation shelter, putting that together on EM2, uh, just to, to demonstrate how feasible, how quickly can they get that assembled that allow us. Does the configuration actually work, or do we need to provide some additional restraints to uh, to help the crew members in this scenario, or do we need to come up with a different concept altogether? Wow. So. Again, it must be a nightmare inside your head. <laughs> there are lots of contingencies that we have to protect for, but it's not nearly all me. Uh, you know, oh, we have a, it's, a, it's a large team who are working on these things. So I get a lot of help from a lot of different areas. Uh, you know, we've got year, 50 years of, of human spaceflight experience to pull from. Yes. Uh, we, we try to use those lessons learned wherever we can. You know, I've, been, I've been here coming up on 20 years. 17 of that was on uh, the ISS program. And like I mentioned, a lot of that was an emergency. A good chunk of that was an emergency training. And so you use a lot of the lessons that we learned, have learned over time about crew coordination and crew protection. Uh, and you feed that into this, and every time we do this, we get better at it as we as we figure out, okay, this we learn more lessons and apply those to our designs. There you go. Like yeah. I said, it's going to be a tough crew that's going to go on Orion, but they should feel pretty good about all the knowledge going into some of these systems. I hope so, and we yeah. work closely with the crew office too. So. Okay, that's good. Uh, what else, I guess, what else could happen after the mission is done? You said there could be a hydrazine or ammonia leak even after landing. Um, post-landing fire what else what else could happen well and the other thing that we 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 look at is we do look at the post-landing fires uh, yeah. i didn't talk about a hydrazine leak one of the things that we protect for so when the rack when the, the spacecraft splashes down there will still be some hydrazine in its propellant tanks hydrazine is actually the most dangerous substance that we have on the spacecraft and, really? and very small amounts can can kill a person uh, that's a system where if if we landed harder than we expected and you ruptured a tank, uh, mm. then that's another one where if you had that detected inside the spacecraft, you wouldn't want to get out as quickly as possible. Uh, we do, as I said a moment ago, we are protecting for staying in the, the crew module for up to 24 hours post-splashdown. Right. If there's a fire in that time frame, we still want the crew to be able to respond to it. Um, now, again, if the fire's bad enough, they, they evacuate to their raft. That's okay. what they would do. Okay. If the fire is manageable, if they're able to, they can still use their water-based fire extinguisher to, mm -hmm. to extinguish the fire, yeah. they can then psych, uh, open up a, uh, an air path and turn on a fan that would cycle the cabin atmosphere uh, and give them clean atmosphere to breathe in that situation. So okay. uh, now that depends on the severity. I'm, I'm always going to fall back to if it's a bad enough fire, if they feel like they're out of, con they're losing control of the situation, they get out of that raft. And like mm -hmm. I said before, we've designed it so it should take them at most three minutes to get out of that, that spacecraft. Okay. So. Another one of those things where there's a lot of checks to make sure that's not going to happen in the first place. Correct. But worst case scenario is it does. Right. Uh, you have to plan for that. Right. Okay. And I think in that case, you're talking about the entire vehicle is going to be packed. If you have a fire, 
it's probably going to be a behind a panel somewhere mm. and it's going to be a little bit harder to find and that's where okay you go you get in your raft and, y and you can survive in the raft we also account for surviving in the raft for up to to meet that 24-hour mark oh so okay uh, we actually have uh, crew survival kits which are so right near the hatch for orion just to the left of the hatch are the raft itself and then we have two survival kits in those survival kits are 24 hours of water uh, for the crew members, some basic first aid materials, uh, and there will be a radio, uh, a search and rescue radio that is then a beacon to uh, signal Navy forces and talk with any rescue forces that come in. Nice. Uh, there's also some uh, uh, exposure protection, a uh, uh, sheet, a blanket. You, sometimes you see those, uh, the, the tinfoil survival yeah. blankets. Well, we'll have something similar there to help protect the crew from exposure okay. in that situation. Wow. Yeah. yeah, I guess as as you're going through, you know, we're talking about all of these nightmare scenarios, really just things that could go wrong. But as you describe the mitigation strategies, I think you can feel pretty good. I mean, these are, the, the idea is that these are relatively unlikely scenarios right um but even if they were to occur you'd be fine and with modern technology like beacons and you know gps, GPS I'm, right. I'm, I'm assuming even if you do land in the middle of the ocean like we can find you that's that's the key right yeah. is is that we have capabilities to signal and, and we have both a satellite phone in the vehicle and we have the search and rescue radio which is good for line of sight communication uh, it will have a GPS capability. There will be a text capability. They could actually text people. So yeah. uh, hopefully if we ever get into one of these situations, they're in a good position. They can talk to mission control. They can talk to the rescue forces that are coming from the Navy mm -hmm. uh, and then let, and have good communication. Or if, if we were to come down really off target, uh, I think the worst case scenario in that is, is uh, landing somewhere in, say, the Indian Ocean, where we know it would take longer than 24 hours. We're developing protocols for contacting what we call a ship of opportunity, hmm. uh, which would be a passing ship, either from an allied navy or, or even a, a private ship, uh, and for the crew to be able to signal them uh, and for us to be able to give that ship of opportunity enough information to help them get the crew uh, on board. Uh, and then give the crew enough information so that they could secure the, the crew module before leaving it in the ocean and getting onto that ship. Okay. So that, that, so we're, we try to think of all the different scenarios, <laughs> at least come up with a protocol for how we would approach it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Worst case scenario, unlikely, but you're going to land so far right. away that we can't get to you in time. The safest option is that someone else is going to get to you. That's right. Okay. That That's makes right. sense. So a lot, a lot of this is, uh, you know, we talked about the crew, especially the crew, right. the crew suppressing the fire, the crew getting into the, how much is, is mission control involved in some of the emergency procedures? So mission control is going to help with uh, the vehicle configurations. Okay. Um, when, whenever, especially with now, if we go back to the fire scenario for a fire in space, one of the things that happens is we isolate the, the system that removes carbon dioxide. Uh, and we do that because the, the, the absorbent material that's going to remove that carbon dioxide could get poisoned by some of the byproducts of the fire. Hmm. Uh, so as soon as we get to a point where the fire's out and the crew is starting to clean back up again, well, we've got four crew members. That CO2 is going to be bu building that. That carbon dioxide is building up in the cabin. So we need to be able to remove that again. Well, the, the ground team's gonna be looking at, okay, what's our best option for, for reconfiguring our system to restore carbon dioxide removal capabilities? Uh, so that's how they will help for some of these uh, 
on orbit cases. They're also going to be running the analysis, say, okay, how much air, how much oxygen do we have for uh, the scenario where they're in the suit for up to six days? Uh, can we repressurize the cabin? You know, when, when we have a leak in the cabin, as the difference between the pressure in the suit grows and the pressure in the cabin grows, it becomes harder for the crew to move. Hmm. Well, we have enough air on Orion that as we get closer to reentry and the crew's got to move around a bit to pack of the vehicle or strap themselves in the seat, we can repressurize that. And the ground team's going to be figuring out, okay, how many hours can we, how, how much time can we give the crew with a repressurized cabin, which is essentially how much time can we feed a quarter-inch leak and keep the pressure at a point where the crew can move around easily. Uh, and they're going to be running those calculations. They're going to be providing that information to the crew. So <laughs> it's, yes, they, they, it is a critical role to assist the crew as much as possible. Yes. Uh, and then that's, that's the mission team or the, excuse me, the, the configuration of the systems. You've also got the medical teams. Hmm. Uh, and, you know, we're going to have, we're going to be in contact with the crew as much as possible in those scenarios, being evaluating their condition psychologically, evaluating their condition physically, uh, providing any recommendations or advice we can to them in terms of medications or any other procedures. Um, you know, if we have a medical emergency on board, you know, that's one other thing we haven't really talked about, but if there's a heart attack or, or uh, if, or something worse, we have a med kit that's on Orion. We've evaluated how would you uh, restrain a patient, uh, say, uh, how would you, we're in the process of evaluating, how would you administer CPR? Mm. Uh, and then again, what capability, what communication, what video can we give to the doctors that are on the ground, the flight surgeons that are on the ground, ah. so that they can see what condition the crew is in and provide that, uh, provide the, the crew with some guidance. Yeah, that. that's yeah. huge, having the eyes and ears of a trained doctor. Absolutely. At least connecting remotely Absolutely. in an emergency situation. That'd be, that's pretty big. And that's another big one for also after you land in the, the ocean. Oh, um, yeah. Uh, if all four crew members are, so in this scenario where we've been in the spacesuit for 144 hours, there's the possibility that after we splash down on the, the ocean that the crew members might not be able to do anything. Uh, they may not be able to take action. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. But from a conservative standpoint, we, we say, okay, let's assume they can't take action what we need to happen and we've gone and we've defined uh, an automated sequence that would shut down the vehicle as quickly as possible allow the navy to move in as quickly as possible and get doctors inside that spacecraft to help out the crew as quickly as possible uh, because that's when the crew is going to be in in need of immediate medical attention mm -hmm. and we want to make sure that we we've set up for that uh, and that can happen as quickly as possible. And the key thing you can plan for is time. That's right. Just make sure you're doing it as That's right. quickly as possible. Yes. Yeah. Um, so here's an interesting question, just based on the things that we've thought about, right? Obviously, I'm learning things about emergencies. There's things that I've never thought about. When is enough? And how do you know that you are in a good position that you can say we're ready to fly? So... When is enough? It is always a difficult question. Yeah. And we look at failure probabilities and we look at what's the probability of this thing catching on fire? What's the probability of a micrometeorite impact? Uh, we try to draw a reasonable line. And then we, we are always, uh, we mentioned the two variables for mass and cost. Mm -hmm. uh, what can we do within our budget? And my role uh, in this as crew systems integration is to make sure uh, I have to be able to tell our, our program manager that we can respond to a fire from that start of the event to getting the crew home. Hmm. 
we can respond to a leak from the start of the event to getting the crew home. And so I bring all of those different engineers, doctors, military personnel in, and we talked through everybody's piece of it, and we make sure that all of those pieces connect together with the design that we have. If I find a gap, you know, if I find that we have an issue where, uh, and we've been working through some of our challenges, uh, say we need extra filters for removing smoke or something like that, uh -huh. then we take that to forward to program management and we have a discussion of here's where we see a gap in our response. Here's how much it would cost for us to add this. Here's how much mass it would add to the vehicle. And then everybody, the various owners of those evaluate and we discuss, okay, how does this weigh in relative priority to other systems, to other issues that we need to go fix? And then we make the, we have the risk trade discussion. If it's something where, where it's going to affect the, the ability of the crew to survive in this situation, well, it's going to get funded, hmm. typically. Uh, or we're going to have a very hard discussion about what is the real risk here and can we really get comfortable with accepting that risk. Okay. Yeah. So, interesting. There's, you have to really, I guess, yeah, you, it's, it's about comfort. It's about... And I think this is a key point is based on your discussion, it's the number one priority is crew safety. And then I guess come trickle down is mission success, integrity Correct. of the vehicle. But number one, and all of these scenarios that you're talking about is the safety of the crew. Like you said, the time of the event to the time you get the crew home. Once an emergency starts, there's no guarantee that we can resume the mission. Yeah. And my, my main focus at that point is getting the crew home. Okay. If we can return to our normal or close to normal operations, uh, that's great. Yes. Uh, but, but my real main concern is making sure we keep the other crew alive and get them home. Right. And yeah. that's your job. Your job is to think about the worst case scenario where right. the situation is that we are getting the crew home. And that's where we go through and we kind of try to pick out what's a most likely fire source that could be a biggest problem to us. What, right. What's the largest hole that we can protect for? What are the most dangerous chemicals that are in the, in the spacecraft that we need to make sure that we have protection against? Yes. So. so we're talking about Orion, obviously, right? This, this vehicle is a deep space vehicle. And the missions that we've been talking about so far are some of the ones that we know are coming up in the near future. That's the right. The ones to the moon, the ones around the moon. Um, we're, we're talking about basically lunar missions. You're talking about from the time of the event, six days, six days you'd have to be in a pressurized suit for a lunar mission. That's right. Right? So how, how, what do we have to change? What do we have to adapt? What do we have to think about for missions even deeper in space? Well, um, I'll start with, with Gateway. You know, we're working with the Gateway team now. There mm -hmm. are missions that would take Orion farther than five days from home. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we have to have a discussion. Of if we have a leak in the spacecraft and we're farther from fi five days from home, do we have a way to address that? Mm -hmm. Is it possible to still dock with Gateway and use that as a, a lifeboat or a place to stay for a few days uh -huh. till we get to a point where we're only five days away from home? Mm -hmm. uh, Fire is a relatively similar process in terms of it, you have the capability to extinguish the fire. Uh, if that, again, comes down to if you can't get your atmosphere breathable, then you would get into the suit and you have 144 hours of capability. So that's a real key one. Mm -hmm. um, but then the other thing to think about is as we go in even farther is the number of crew members and things like right now we have a radiation shelter that can handle four crew members within the Orion spacecraft. Uh, is Orion part of the architecture that goes to, to Mars? 
do you have that radiation shelter? Do you need a larger radiation shelter? Uh, if you have something there, there some of our, our commercial companies have looked at really kind of a large scale vehicle, how are you going to protect all of those people in that type of environment? What kind of systems do you have? Yeah. Um, and, and you're talking about scaling up systems from one or two up to, or up to four right now, up to more than that. Uh, so we, we have to, the big key is how far are you away from home? What other assets do you have out there that you can use? Mm -hmm. uh, and then are you comfortable with either not covering something and just accepting the risk that this won't happen? Or do we need to provide some changes to the system? Uh, one of the things that's been mentioned as part of the arch gateway architecture is having our commercial providers provide uh, supplies just like they do for ISS. Do you bring separate emergency equipment or, or more air or more water so that you can use uh, that gateway as a, as a platform or a lifeboat to, to keep you alive for a little bit longer in space if you needed to in an emergency? So. Okay. Yeah. yeah, still a lot of steps, right? Yes. As we go further out, obviously, even just talking about this, all of the different emergency situations, this is just to get on and around the moon. That's right. And around, I mean, as you go further, it gets way more complicated. Yeah, right. Yeah. And there comes a point where you can't, and, and you go into this, you know, and you can't protect for everything. Sure. So, again, you, you try to give the system enough capability, going back to the Martian example where, you know, here's the design you have. Hopefully we've given you enough that you can take that and you can adapt that in a way that, that allows you to get safely home no matter what the actual situation is. Mm. You know, which hopefully we've avoided from Apollo 13 the square peg in the round hole when it came to the CO2 cartridge so that if you have to use something beyond its intended purpose, you still have that capability available to you. There you go. Well, Jason, I think uh, after this discussion, I feel pretty good about uh, the Orion <laughs> spacecraft. I'm not an pretty astronaut, good. but honestly, after all, going through all of the different emergency scenarios, all the things you've thought about, you and your teams, obviously, uh, to make sure that the crew is going to be safe, I think we can feel pretty good about some of these missions coming up. I hope so. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's something there. You can never say absolutely, but yes, I yes. hope so. Yeah, yeah. that's <laughs> exactly. That's your job is to make sure. Well, Jason, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. Hey, thanks for sticking around. So today we talked with Jason Hutt about some of the uh, unlikely emergencies that could happen on the Orion spacecraft and how we are prepared for them. So if you've, again, listened to us before, you know that we've gone through uh, some of the five technologies from the article, Top Five Technologies Needed for a Spacecraft to Survive Deep Space. And today we talked about uh, if any of those systems go wrong, what we are going to do about them. So you can follow Orion on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also follow what's going on aboard the International Space Station and here at the Johnson Space Center. Use the hashtag AskNASA on any one of those platforms. Mention Houston, we have a podcast, and we'll bring it on the show. So this episode was recorded on November 20th, 2018. Thanks to Alex Perryman, Bill Stafford, Pat Ryan, Laura Rashawn, Barb Zelon, Kylie Clem, and Rachel Kraft. And thanks again to Mr. Jason Hutt for coming on the show. We'll be back next week.